I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present yourself, or present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Please be seated. The captain always goes down with the ship. You've heard that, right? The captain always goes down with the ship. The captain must do everything they can to save those who are on board if the ship is going down or, as the legend goes, die trying. In some cultures, this became, over the centuries, not just a, cult, a question of leadership and responsibility, but also one of honor, where the loss of a ship might be such a source of shame for the captain, or the idea of a glorious death was so attractive that the sacrifice of one's life, the sacrifice of a captain's life, signaled a kind of selfless love for something greater. Here was a sacrifice amid tragedy, a sanctification of what would otherwise just be a great loss. I remember reading Herman Wouk's War and Remembrance. This is a few years ago, a few decades ago, um, where late in the novel, Pug, an American captain, in a furious battle with the Pacific, he realized that, that his ship was going down. Uh, and the narrator, Her Herman Wook, tells us as the reader, because we were probably all thinking, is Pug going to go down with his ship? Well, we, I read there that in the Second World War, and really a culture of the American Navy, is, is that American captains were not expected to go down with their ship. Now, they were expected to do everything they could to get their crew to safety. But, but you see, this was late in the war, late in the Second World War. And, and manpower was valuable. And experienced fighters were worth their weight in gold. So to the Navy, it would have been an absolute waste of a perfectly good captain for the captain to go down with his ship. In fact... It's not a shame to go through this. Someone who's actually gone through the experience of losing a ship in battle has really valuable knowledge, and we don't want to lose that. So it was enough of a sacrifice to have lost the ship. It was enough of a sacrifice to have lost beloved crew members. And so captains like Pug were more valuable as, and I'm going to use the word from the epistle, a living sacrifice than they would have been as a symbol of honor at the bottom of the sea. Now going back a little farther than that, let's talk about the ancient world. The ancient world had a, generally a different idea of sacrifice uh, than we do in our world. In so many cultures, this is all over the world, it was considered a part of life to offer a portion of your crops or your livestock back to the gods, whoever those gods might be. 
Now, the idea of placing a portion of our hard-earned stuff uh, on the altar and seeing that burned up, that, that can seem a little bit quaint. Or, or maybe we see it as analogous uh, to the tithe, to proportional giving. But, but there's something deeper there. You see, there is an implicit commitment to make sacrifices that are costly to us and not to someone else. To make a sacrifice, it isn't just making something holy. It's a promise to take responsibility for our own lives by actually giving something up. Because I would suggest that if we aren't conscious about what it is that we're willing to part with, what it is that we're placing on the altar, and we aren't aware that it's coming from our own bounty, I'd say there's a good chance that in our blissful unawareness, we would instead be benefiting from somebody else's sacrifice, from somebody else giving something up. And just look around. What, what is a tremendous wealth gap when so many in our world suffer while a few live so well, but, but sacrificing others through systems and structures that benefit the powerful? What, what are all those ways that we cast our neighbors aside, whether it's through homophobia or racism or any place that we set someone aside, but a form of human sacrifice where we tell people that they have no value, that they have nothing to give. Like it or not, as people, part of our job as people of faith is to offer sacrifice. Yet that term has fallen out of fashion because without thinking about it, it casts God as a capricious and hungry boss who only values us for our ability to set things on fire. It's not really cool to talk about, you know, sacrificing to God. But you see, that isn't what God wants. Through Paul, God says, I don't want you just to set, thing, set things on the altar and set them on fire. I want you. I want, and not just part of you. I want all of you. Through God, we hear about being living. Through Paul, we hear about being living sacrifices. Both offering ourselves... Not just 5, 10, or 20% of ourselves, but all of ourselves. But also being made holy by that. And then being sent back into the world as living sacrifices. To be a gift to all that God created. Now, I am, I'm actually no expert in temple worship. You would think we learn about that in seminary, but no, we did not. But it does occur to me that, that there are some things that are a part of making an offering, making a sacrifice, that might tell us a little bit about what, what Paul is talking about when he calls us to be living sacrifices. There's a movement, there's a four-part movement. The first is offering. The people come before God to offer something that is valuable to them. Maybe livestock, maybe wine, maybe grain. The sacrifice, after it's offered, is then accepted by God, 
who deems the sacrifice to be worthy and also deems that this has been made in good faith. It's then consumed. And then finally there is a restoration. When the relationship is restored or even in the case of being living sacrifices, the offered thing, item, is then restored to its place in the community. Offered, accepted, consumed, and restored. This is the arc of becoming a living sacrifice. Now, I'll start with offering. That act of offering is all about intention. So, when you were taught early on that it's the thought that counts, that's true. It is the thought that counts. What is behind the offering of a gift? But it's not just the thought that counts. It's also, the, the point is that it's our wholeheartedness that really brings us into union with God. It's our desire, our commitment to offer our whole selves that really makes something holy happen. It's the why. It's what draw, drew us to the altar. It's that powerful and prayerful process of discernment that leads us to offer ourselves to the larger life. And when we do that, when we offer ourselves with, with open, we live with open hearts. We seek out opportunities for self-emptying and self-giving because we've figured out that there is, there is great joy in that. There, it's generative. It helps us to grow and see life for what it's really all about. To live ready to give of our time or our love or our money or our whole selves is to live an awakened life. To offer is an end unto itself. And it can be the culmination of a great journey. If, if our whole spiritual journey is about learning how to open our hearts, how to be ready to offer ourselves all the time, over and over again, that is a really rich and fulfilling life. And then when we do, when we make that offering, when we bring it to the altar, will it be accepted? Will we be accepted? How many of us know what it's like to be told that because of, of who we are, or where we come from, we aren't fully accepted into a community or a church or a family or, or any group that, that you can think of. Think for a moment about what your body feels like when we think about communities that, that have not accepted us. What happens? Does, does your body tense up? Does your heart begin to race just a little bit? Now, I don't want you to stay there too long because I now want to go think about those places where, you have, where you've really been accepted. I know that when I think about that, I, I, my breathing slows down. I can breathe a little bit more easily. I let my defenses down. I feel more alive. I feel more ready. I feel more open. 
And so can you imagine being told at the altar, your offering is not acceptable because you are not worthy enough. I I suppose many of us can. Yet to come before this altar is to offer oneself to the very one who created you. And that means complete acceptance. I don't just mean acceptance on those surface identities that we cultivate, as in, hi, I'm BJ, I'm an American, I'm a priest, and a Leo, and a three on the Enneagram. Rather, I am a child of God who is infinitely worthy of love and acceptance, regardless of what I accomplish, regardless of where I come from. And God knows me, and God knew me even before my given name was a thing. As a soul connected to God's infinite love. That's what acceptance is. And to be accepted like that changes us. And it changes our whole lives. Next comes the fun part. God consumes us. The thing that has been offered gets gobbled up. So, if your plan was to go through this process and come out the other side the same, just a little bit better, then I'm afraid I'm here to disappoint you because there are big changes in the offering. Now, I'm going to get technical for a minute. There's a little difference between an offering and a sacrifice. An offering is something that is given, uh, but you can still imagine something productive being done with it. So uh, if you're in the old temple, you put a few coins in the box, and you know that those will still be used probably to turn the lights on or something like that. But a sacrifice is something different. A sacrifice is a glorious waste. When you bring that animal to the altar, it's going to be slaughtered. When you bring that that wine to the altar, it's going to be poured out into the ground. No good to anybody. When you take those grains and those foodstuffs to the altar, they're going to be set on fire. The Latin for sacrifice is immolare, which we would think of as immolate. The language of fire is all over there. And our scripture is filled with the language of fire overtaking us. From the tongues of flame at Pentecost to the disciples, remember, realizing that they'd met Jesus when they were talking to a stranger. And what did they say afterwards? We're not our hearts burning within us. Faith is not always just a comforting balm. It is a consuming fire as well. And so our sacrifices come not from from rote obedience to the boss deity, but rather from a passionate love affair with holiness, with with the God of life. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by it. That transformation is like playing with matches. As this stuff, it's like it's divine pyrotechnics as the stuff of this world burns off to reveal something pure and holy beneath. And then finally, 
as living sacrifices, we are restored. Restored to our lives, restored to our community, but we are not the same. We are not the same. We have already made the sacrifice. We have already experienced the fire, and yet we are here, made new, made something as a gift to the whole world. The consuming fire of sacrifice reveals something. It reveals our membership in the body of Christ. Paul says that we each have gifts according to the grace given to us. Some are givers, some are leaders, some are priests, some are captains. Some are healers, some are exuberant exhorters. Those gifts are revealed by the fire. I appeal to you, beloved, to present your bodies, your minds, and your spirits as a living sacrifice. To offer yourselves wholeheartedly to God and to each other. To know that you are accepted and known by the one who created you. To be consumed in the holy fire, in the love affair with the sacred. And finally, to be restored. With a burning desire to serve and to love and to then start this joy-filled cycle of offering all over again. Amen.